Welcome, everyone, to another installment of Cats Corner Conversations. I am Brad Franklin, publisher of CatsCorner.com, which is brought to you all basketball season long by the good folks over at Thorium Wealth. Check them out online, ThoriumWealth.com, for more information and full disclosures, T-H-O-R-I-U-M, Wealth.com. So it is, uh, it's been a while since we've had one of these conversations. I, obviously, basketball season, well, football season into basketball season and everything. I thought, though, this was the perfect opportunity uh, in a different kind of Virginia basketball year to maybe do things a little differently. I usually have my buddy Patrick Stevens come on a little bit closer to the ACC tournament, sometimes at the ACC tournament, uh, as we talk about the bracket and everything before it comes out. But with Virginia sitting on the bubble, at least right now on the right side of it, I thought it might be a good idea to bring Patrick on. You know him, you love him. He's my guy when it comes to all things bracketology. You can check out his work online on Twitter, Discourse. It's D1. Um, so basically the eye of Discourse is a one. Um, you can check out his work at The Athletic and at The Washington Post. Patrick, how are you doing today, sir? I'm well, Brad. How are you fine uh, Sunday morning yeah that's a it's it, I'm, I'm doing well uh, I want to that was gonna ready to, that was my next thing is that while we are recording this before Virginia plays again there are some games around um obviously over you know the next day or so so if uh I don't expect that it will impact Virginia's situation too much but I just want to throw that out there as a disclosure that you know if um you know if the if if there are a bunch of results and it throws everything off it's not Patrick's fault it's my fault um all right, let's start there's, here. There's, there's also there's also three weeks worth of results still to come now too. <laughs> so things things are going to look a lot different come come the Ides of March than than they do right now. That's a very good point, and that's actually exactly where I wanted to start. Um, wh- uh, these next few weeks, um, before we start sp- talking specifically about UVA, I just want to talk about I don't know the the situation in general. I feel like there we you know. We, the whole joke about how like oh this is a historically bad bubble we you know gets made every year and I feel like the problem is it's almost like Virginia basketball right that the um, the national pundits wanted to talk smack about Virginia when Virginia was good and now this year it's like oh right like that offense is really rough to watch at times although it's been better lately which we'll talk about but mm-hmm. this year it is the historically bad bubble year at least from where I'm sitting now full disclosure I am not. Uh, nor, you know, I'm a pragmatist, right? Like I, I, I am very much focused on what I need to focus on. So the last few years, I haven't worried about the bubble. I haven't worried about the field. I've been worried about locations, you know, where is Virginia going to go and where, what were my plans going to be made? This is obviously different for me. I mean, I had to like basically deep do a deep dive on the net cause I never had to worry about it before. Um, but in terms of the, the whole landscape, uh, as you look at this thing, as it shapes up over the next few weeks, is this an historically bad bubble, or is it just a function of parity? How do you see the field sort of shaping up as we get closer and closer to Selection Sunday? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily a historically bad edge of the field. I, I, I frankly don't think it's any worse or better than most years. I think some of that, if we're going to sit here and, and kind of go into your own, everybody's individual biases, I, I'm up here in the Baltimore area, so I see Big Ten teams come through now. And so, like, I see a Purdue that's at the edge of the field, and I think, well, I saw them. They, they weren't terrible, you know. And, and regardless of what the numbers say, you, you do kind of trust your eyes a little bit as to what's a good team or what's not a good team. Um, I would also point this out, that the, the arc of, oh, the bubble's terrible. Oh, it's, it's horrible. The edge of the field is dreadful. That talk year after year after year follows the same arc, which is everyone saying that when they, when they really start paying attention to the edge of the field, which is usually around the first or second week of February. And then when you get into late February and early March, you have a handful of teams and, and we can already identify a couple of them now 
Xavier and Arizona State, teams that have started to play pretty darn good basketball, and, and they kind of elevate that edge of the field a little bit. And then you get yourself into conference tournaments and you have, say, a surprise winner in the Atlantic 10 tournament, and maybe, uh, maybe you have a six-seed win the Pac-12 tournament, and all of a sudden the edge of the field doesn't look so bad anymore. It might not be great, but it's suddenly the 36th best at-large team looks about what you think the 36th best at-large team should look like. <laughs> It's always funny to me how we pay so much attention this time of year to the to the margins, right? We we look at mm -hmm. absolute edges of everything, and we lose our minds over like these. You know, not necessarily saying that teams you know won't win it, or sorry, let me rephrase that they couldn't win it, even though we probably you know it's very likely they won't. But we get so you know you know so spun up about the edges. Um, I think as you look across, I think the thing is for me is that as you watch games, there's just so much more uncertainty, it feels like now, versus maybe, um, you know, not that long ago. And I, I don't know I don't know what to attribute that to, but I do think that as, as fans watch the games, they see that. And so they try to extrapolate that out, even though, as you're saying, like, it's really not that big a deal. Does that make sense? <laughs> to me, the big difference between this year and other seasons is that the top of the field has been leveled off. Right. Like, at this, at this time last year, and even in early February of last year, we had a pretty good idea who the top eight or nine teams were. You know, like, right. I mean, you kind of knew. You right. kind of knew. And there was a gap there. And, and Kansas, I think, fell below it a little bit because they, they took some losses later in the season once they had some injuries. But for the most part, you knew who was good. And so this year you kind of know who's good. Like, you think Kansas and Baylor, and regardless of what happened last night, Gonzaga and San Diego State and Duke and Dayton and Maryland, well, we think they're all pretty good teams. Um, is there any single one of those that you would trust to win, say, three games in a row in the tournament? I, I don't think so. <laughs> right? I don't think, there, I don't think there's a single one of them. And, and, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, because I think teams like Baylor and Kansas in particular have been really, really good for most of the season. I mean, Baylor has a random loss in the first week of the season to Washington when it was healthy, and it lost yesterday at home to Kansas. Kansas has the loss on the first day of the season, I believe, uh, and then they have a, a one-point loss to Villanova on the road and a loss to Baylor at home. So they've done nothing bad, and they both play fabulous defense. And if we take any lessons at all from 2019, it's that we should probably trust good defensive teams. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I like those two. And, and frankly, the team I see as much as anybody, Maryland, plays excellent defense. And so it's probably the most that I've trusted a Maryland team, um, probably since we were talking about having guys like Steve Blake around. <laughs> so, yeah. so. You know, I, I, I do tend to trust those defense-oriented teams, at least in the early rounds. You know, I, I have a personal belief that, and this is very basic, but you have to score to win. And, you know, one of the things that people overlooked about Virginia was that they were a really efficient offense last year. Uh, yeah, they were great defensively, but you knew, you knew they'd find a way to score most of the time. Sometimes it, sometimes it would be ugly, but a lot of times they, they played pretty well at the offensive end. So as you're kind of sizing up these teams, you're like, well, they're pretty good. I don't know if they're great. I don't know if, 
I don't know if I would I would sit there and say nine times out of ten that Kansas or Baylor is, or Gonzaga is going to beat a number four seed that it happens to encounter in a round of sixteen game. I mean, what if that four seed's like Auburn? Right. Yeah. What if it's what if it's what if it's Kentucky? What if it's what if it's Oregon on one of its better days? Yeah. What if it's I mean I mean we can run down the list. So you know I, I think that's the big difference this season is that is that there isn't that team at the top, and they're obviously, if we're just comparing it directly to last year or the last couple years, there isn't that charismatic player that everybody, all right, not just everybody, but specifically a certain television network <laughs> has decided to pitch its wagon to. Right. So there's not, a, there's not a Zion Williamson, and there's not a Trey Young, and I mean, we can go back a ways even further. There's not an Anthony Davis or somebody like that. Um and so ultimately, you're kind of left with this, uh, this this sort of starless sky of well, you got some good teams there, but what are we really going to be? Are we really scared of any of these teams? Do we think any of them are absolute locks to be going to Atlanta or even making a regional final? I I, I think that's the big difference that you're you, you're sort of looking for that north star and it doesn't exist this season. That's a very good point. And, you know, it's funny. It's, I feel like for years, right, as, as basketball fans, we, ex, we, we, we watched the wave coming, right, where, you know, it was this seed over a such-and-such such seed, and it was this seed over whatever, and this many such-and-such such seeds beat this many top seeds, and blah, blah, blah. And we got closer and closer. And then I think it finally reached the shore with UMBC. And I don't bring that up. I mean, I understand my audience, right? So I, we don't need to, to, to beleaguer it. Um, although I, I made this joke on Twitter. It's funny how you never hear about that game anymore. Um, but I think once that glass <laughs> was broken, right, I think it's then we were like, oh, right. Like, do you really trust any team? Look at look at Virginia last year, right? Virginia wins a national mm-hmm. championship, needed it's like a whole bunch of different things to go exactly right in the right times, right? Um, that's not to say that any of those other teams that they played, um, you know, the you know from, from – um, Garner Webb to Oklahoma to Oregon, like all, that entire. You look at those teams they played; those were good teams. And I think as as we've gone forward in time, it makes sense to me that that this that we look at the field differently because the field is different because parity is a real thing. And the and the days of the monster teams just being heads and shoulders above everybody else and just being just so dominant, it's not. That's not. I don't know if that time's ever coming back. Like maybe you know you have a year here or there where one team has a really great recruiting class and they're able to just put a whole lot of talent together, or you have a group like maybe that Virginia team where you know you 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 didn't know exactly how it would look game to game to game, but you knew what the final result would be. Um, but I just don't know as we move forward if that's going to be a thing. Which then brings me to this Virginia team, um, <laughs> which has been quite the experience for me if I'm being completely honest um in in a part because like aside from knowing that they were going to play good defense you just never know night to night what you're going to get and that is such a microcosm of the entire thing I was just talking about right like this Virginia team Mm -hmm. doesn't do anything well I don't say anything they don't do a lot of things the way most Virginia teams do and so you're not sure if they're gonna you know score three points in overtime and win a overtime game 50 to 49 or whatever or whether they're going to score 80 um or 75 like clearly they haven't done a lot of that this season but they clearly have it in them especially now with uh world attendance hitting the three a little bit in terms of virginia and as they approach the next few weeks now again caveat being there's a whole lot of uh hay that has to be put in the barn so i'm not going to tell you like hey patrick what seed is virginia going to get um but in terms of making the tournament where where do you feel like virginia is 
at this very moment here, Sunday morning, having just you know gone to Pittsburgh and had to eke out a win that should have been a lot more comfortable. But as as it sits today, heading into going to Blacksburg Wednesday night, where do you feel like Virginia is right now in terms of the bubble? Well, I think they're in, I think they're in the field. I think the, I think the Cavaliers are inside the field, probably. And I I was actually just getting started with kind of piecing together the bracket for Tuesday that will go up for the Washington Post uh, right before you called. Um, I think that when you size them up, you, you, you look at the team sheet, right? And so you've got the net ranking of 50 coming into Sunday. And then they list five other metrics. Some of them are, are sort of evaluative based on what you've accomplished. Some of them, like Ken Palm, are more predictive based on what you would expect the team to do uh, in a certain matchup. And so – the net ranking of 50 is the lowest of the six for Virginia. Four of them are in the 30s, and the Ken Palm ranking is 49th. So there's no, there's no blaring horn there that says this team doesn't belong anywhere near the conversation. Like if you're a top 50 team, you're in the conversation. Uh, they're 3-3 three and three in, in quad one games uh, with the Florida State win, which is nice, which, with the Arizona State neutral site win, which looks better and better by the day. Uh, Six and three against quad two. So you're nine and six in those top two quads. Uh, only one loss that you really, really, really like to have back, uh, and that's the Boston College road loss uh, back in back in January. Uh, five and four on the road. There, there's nothing here that says this is a team that's in any serious trouble as long as they handle their business. And how would you define handling their business? Well, quite frankly, it means going to Blacksburg and winning, going to Miami and winning, uh, and then probably picking off one other game somewhere, whether Mm -hmm. that's either Duke or Louisville in the regular season or just going ahead and winning that 4-5 game in all likelihood in the ACC tournament. And you know what? It's possible that this Virginia team could could go 2-3 and the rest of the way Mm -hmm. and still be fine. One of the things that's important to remember – is that everybody you're getting compared to in the at-large field lost its last game? Probably. Hmm. Think about that. Like every, you know, everybody you're getting compared to for those spots is going to lose that last week of the season because they didn't win their conference tournament. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So, with with the situation, know, as long as, go ahead. I was going to say with the situation that Virginia's in. Um, I would imagine that um, for a lot of people who are who, who are listening, they're wondering. All right, let's say, let's say X or let's say Y. Those those kinds of hypotheticals, I think, are tough for me to ask you to answer. So I'm, I'm going to try to avoid. Yeah, and the re- and the reason it, the reason it's hard to answer, I'll go ahead and kind of answer what I think is coming here. Is you, no team is operating in a vacuum. Right. So you want to say, what, what happens if this happens? Well, you know, some of that depends on if the sixth seed in the Big 12 tournament wins the conference tournament. Right. And some of it depends on if some random team that you don't think is all that great suddenly catches fire over the next three weeks. Uh, like in Alabama. Let's say Alabama wins out until the SEC final. Well, they'll, they'll probably be okay then. Um, and it can work in the other way, too. There are teams that you might think are reasonably safe at the moment. But if they lose out, suddenly they're in trouble. Right. So you have, you know, to, to it would be it's somewhat overly dramatic to say there's 353 variables at play here, each with somewhere between three and seven or eight games remaining at this stage. Right. Um, it's probably more accurate 
uh, and less dramatic to say there's roughly a hundred variables out there, each with three or four, three or four or five or six or seven variables of their own mm-hmm. kind of thrown out there. Yeah. So you know, to to sit here on February 23rd and try to say, well, if X happens, then a team is safely in the field is a little much. I mean, granted, I could sit here and tell you that, say, Duke and Florida State and Louisville are going to be in the field. Um, but if, if, you want, if you want something definitive from me for, about Virginia, I would say, well, go win the ACC tournament. Then, <laughs> then you know. That is the what? Yeah, it's, a, it's the, uh, the 100% lock. I think what's interesting for me, having just you know, lived through that football season and having, oh my gosh, those last few weeks, there were so many different scenarios in the coastal and how to get here and do this. And I mean, this is like that on steroids, right? Like, because there are just so many yeah. more teams involved and so many more variables that it's impossible to account for. But the one thing that Virginia had going forward in the football season, and I mean, obviously would still have now, is go win all the games and it doesn't matter. Um, it, all of it takes care of itself. Now, that being said, I do think that it's fair for fans, if you're trying to get a sense as these next few weeks go, um, if if Virginia wins the games that they're supposed to, they'll they'll be fine. And I think that probably is 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 a is a is a simple way to kind of frame the thing for folks who 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 get spun up about those kinds yeah. of things. And I think for a lot of Virginia fans, frankly, I think for a lot of them, they're just they if this team makes the tournament, they're going to feel pretty good because they lost three NBA dudes, uh, had a major contributor out for you know a handful of games. And it's, it's a lot of role players who are playing much bigger than roles, right? And I think for a lot of Virginia fans, they just want to make the field. And then they trust, you know, whether, whether they win one or don't win one, I think they're just happy to be there, which is, you know, kind of interesting coming off of a title. Um, as you look around the ACC, you mentioned a minute ago, you know, the three at the top, um, which is kind of interesting because of the way the standings are kind of working out. Virginia now, you know, safely in that double buy spot. I, can, I guess their magic number down to two. Um, to, to lock that up. Um, Virginia looks like they're in the tournament. How do you see, at least as of today, in these last few weeks, who, who, who's in, in, in hitting distance, right? Who's in striking distance of actually making the field from the, from the league other than Virginia at this point? I, I, I think that, might, that list might begin and end with NC State. I mean, first of all, even though they're not going to make the field, I just want to say Brad Brownell is a freaking magician. <laughs> I mean, there's some sort of sorcery going on down there that, that he took that roster, which was in such flux and had injuries and this, that, and the other. And, and granted, they got a little bit of help by playing in those World University games in the summer and just having a little bit of extra time. I mean, but, but that roster is basically being held together by pipe cleaners and Twizzlers. <laughs> and, and, and they're eight and eight in the league, you know, and, and, and it's funny because I, I know you know Joe Gillio covers NC State for the for the Raleigh News and Observer, mm-hmm. and I remember talking to him before ACC Media Day, and we're kind of sizing up the standings. And he's like, "How the hell is Clemson going to win any games?" And I'm like, "I guarantee you, he wins eight somehow. Like he'll be they'll be sitting there at eight and twelve at the end of the season, and they're going to do better than that." Yeah, I mean they're eight and eight right now. They would be the five seed yeah. if the tournament started today. Um, <laughs> So aside from that shout out for Clemson and, and Brad Brownell, who I think is is one of the more underappreciated coaches in the land, uh, if you look at NC State, um, what a what an oddball profile they've got. Um, the good thing for them is that they didn't play the second worst non conference schedule in the country this year, so that's progress. Um, <laughs> Step in the right direction. <laughs> you know they have they have a set of 
decent road victories relative to what you would expect for teams in that spot. They won at Virginia. They wanted a really good UNC Greensboro team, and, and they won up at the Carrier Dome. Uh, they're 5-4 and four in Quadrant 1 games. They're 4-3 and three in Quadrant 2 games. All those metrics we were talking about earlier, they're between 37th and 52nd in all of them. So there's no outlier that says, oh, my gosh, there's a, there's a, there's a reason to be worried about this team. Yet it's also a team that lost at home to Georgia Tech on the first day of the season. They lost home to the worst Carolina team in a generation. And they also <laughs> lost at Boston College. Um, and so the other issue for them is that unlike a Virginia, which has two obvious chances to help itself, and then two road games that if they, they shouldn't lose, it would be smart to go win them. Um, but even if they lose at Virginia Tech, it's not going to kill them, right? You look at NC State, and they've got, a, they've got a return game to Duke, so you'll get angry Duke in that game. They've got a return game to North Carolina, and then they have home games against Pitt and Wake Forest that do them no good. And they, oh, and by the way, they're still NC State, and they lose games like that all the time. <laughs> yeah, not a whole so, lot of hope for the league. <laughs> not a whole lot know, of hope. <laughs> so, so, so I look at them, and, and I, I think they're in okay shape. If they were another team, if they had another n- name on the, on, the, on the jersey, right? You go, oh, they'll take care of Pitt and Wake Forest at home, and they'll knock off North Carolina, and they'll, they'll get into the barn at 20 and 11, and it'll be up to them to go win at least their first game in the ACC tournament. And then, they'll, you know what, they'll probably be the five seed, and they'll be facing Virginia, and it'll be one of those years where they just have quite a bit to play for there. You know, yeah. I, I feel like there's been a few of those four or five NC State-Virginia games over the years, uh, and I'm talking going back yeah, even into, like, 2001 or 2002 that type of era where you're like yeah you know whoever wins this game is going to feel a little bit better about themselves yeah uh and one team probably needs it a little more than the other so but you, you start going through other teams in the league and they're just there's just not enough there unless somebody catches fire and part of the problem everybody talks about you know how many teams is the league going to get well the league doesn't get teams doesn't get bids teams get bids but the one thing the league contributes is the number of quality opportunities that you're going to have to go get good victories. So let's take a Notre Dame, for example, who's 16 and 10, um, 59 in the net. Most of their metrics are between 47 and 61. They've got one that's a bit of an outlier. Uh, they, their best victories are at Syracuse and at Clemson. And that's really not going to, that's, that's not what you need to have as your flagship victories. And what do they have left? They've got a home game against Florida State, which will help, and then a trip to Wake Forest in Quadrant 2, and home games against Virginia Tech and Miami, and a trip to Boston College. So that's a team that if they do what you would conventionally think they're supposed to do and go 4-1 and one the rest of the way, they're sitting there at 20-11, and 11, and they're still going to need a pretty extensive run in the ACC tournament to really find themselves in the conversation because they just haven't accomplished a whole lot. I mean, if you look at them, I'm looking at their profile right now, and I'm not sure they have a victory over a team that would be in the field if it was announced today. Um, Robert Morris doesn't lead the NEC anymore, so or at least wouldn't be the number one seed in the NEC anymore. So that would have been the team I would have pointed to. But, you know, you're looking at Syracuse, Clemson, Georgia Tech, and then your quad three victories, UCLA, Georgia Tech, Carolina, Pitt, Wake, Toledo. Um, you know, they haven't beaten anybody. 
and you know they're 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 two and six in quad one games, so they have the, the two decent road victories with Syracuse and Clemson. But they just they, there's not enough there to really stitch together a profile. It's, it's a little bit like what the Big Ten faced a couple years ago when they had four really good teams, and then they had Nebraska, which beat up on everybody else but couldn't beat any of the good teams, uh, and was sitting there at something like thirteen and five in the conference and got left out because they just didn't have any quality victories. Yeah, and, and so you know Notre Dame is. Notre Dame would have been the next team I would have chosen in this conversation, uh, but ultimately they don't have much to hang their hat on. And, you know, we, we play the game with Syracuse much the same way. Their overall metrics a little weaker uh, than Notre Dame's. They do have the victory at Virginia. They, they won at Notre Dame, uh, but they, they immediately run into the exact same problem. Who else did they beat? Uh, Colgate? They beat Colgate. That's nice. Colgate's pretty good. But it, it, it only pops up on quadrant three for these purposes. So right. uh, you know, we can go on and on all the way down. I mean, you've, you've got uh, all these teams that have double-digit wins and double-digit losses, and ultimately facing teams like that that don't have a whole lot of, on their non-conference profile just doesn't help you that much. Yeah. I got two more questions, and, I, and I'll get you out. Uh, first off, I want to talk a little bit about the net. So – like I said before, this is not necessarily because of the <laughs> again, I'm a pragmatist. Um, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to it, and in doing so this year, it's been kind of interesting because it seems like Virginia will have success and then fall in the in the net. And I, I want to get your thoughts on how you think that it's that that metric and that kind of um, framework is working for for the for the sport in terms of picking the field in terms of helping a, as a um, you know as a tool in the toolbox because it seems like to me that that it doesn't do as good a job of understanding sort of where a team is as much as it does a great job of sort of taking everything and putting it together and sort of producing this one you know piece of information um, it doesn't it, it doesn't feel like it that that is susceptible much at all to any sort of recency bias any sort of like hey this is a team playing well with momentum right what do you what are your thoughts on, no, on not, that metric and, and how does and how it uh and how it sort of has um been utilized to this point well the way it was utilized last year was as much as a sorting tool as anything else which is what the rpi was to some extent as well especially in its later years um when when you use it as a sorting tool it explains why an nc state which had a net ranking, I think it was like 32, 33, some, somewhere in that vicinity got left out. And a team like St. John's, which was in the 60s or 70s, but had a bunch of good wins, uh, ended up getting in. You know, one of the things that clearly it influences the movement in this, in this metric is if you lose at home or you win on the road, those are things that are going to shift things a lot more than winning on the road, even against a, or winning at home, even against a good team, or losing on the road, even against a moderately bad team. So it, it essentially has that kind of built in. the The formula is unknown. That's it has not been publicized or anything like that. And I've talked to some people that kind of understand these sorts of things a lot better than I do. Like, I mean, I can sit there, like I can sit there and pick apart the RPI because it was a really simple formula ultimately. And you could tinker with it and change the variables. The interesting thing from, from what might be the case with the net is that the formula might change a little bit year over year where, uh, where it's taking data 
from previous seasons, pick out however many you want, five seasons, ten seasons, whatever, and sort of factoring all that stuff in and kind of saying, well, what kind of makes a good team? So you're sort of retrofitting everything into, into trying to uh, sort something out that, that makes some sense. So I, I don't think there is like an actual base formula that never changes, which in some ways is a good thing because you're not able to game the thing anywhere near as well as you could game the RPI. I mean, I could have told you exactly how to schedule in the RPI and, and get you a, an inflated number relative to what you really should be. You know, you don't play anybody in the bottom 150 or so, uh, and you play a couple road games against some of those, like, 175-ish teams, and you'll get a little bit of a bump from winning those road games that you absolutely should win. And the next thing you know, you know, you're sitting there in a in – a, in, a, in the Mountain West or whatever, and you're 26 and five, and your your RPI is 20th, even though you probably only have four or five victories of any sort of merit. So this is a little bit different. Uh, and like I said, it was used more as a sorting tool than as a this team's net is X, therefore they should be seated here or in the field or out of the field or whatever. I do think to some extent there is a if you see a team in the top 20 of the net you're probably going to be inclined to think that they deserve an extremely long look as to whether they get in or not. If you see a team that's outside, say, the top 80, and then you probably sit there and say this is not a team that probably warrants a spot in the field and might not require quite as long a look as, as some others. So that, that's kind of where, where that thing stands right now. All right, last one. And now they, they say you should never ask a magician to reveal – um, how he does the trick, and so I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna ask you to give me any state secrets here, but I am genuinely curious how your process works. Is this something like if it's something that you um, you're keeping track of in a certain way all season long? Is there a time frame when you really start to dig into it? You, you mentioned before, obviously, you're putting together a, um, a bracket for the post that'll run Tuesday. What what's your process generally like when when you're you know, kind of weighing these things. Are is it something that you're paying attention to all season long? Is there are you keeping track of this or that, or, or is there a time frame when you really start to dig into it versus maybe earlier in the season when when you don't care as much? What's your process like, Patrick? Well, we'll start with this. I I think that besides besides like the preseason field of sixty eight that I'll toss out there as a lark, basically, I, I think it's utterly useless to even attempt go through this exercise until about a week or two into January. Right. And it's not in my financial best interest to say that <laughs> or to insist upon that. So believe me when I say that is what I believe, that that anybody that's trying to do this before then it is just oh, hoodwinking. You. Right. There, there just is not, there's not enough data to work with. And so I usually don't look seriously at any sort of metrics for evaluative purposes until, you know, Jan 10, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you're, you're keeping an eye on results and you're going through the process of doing this once a week. Uh, and it's worth noting that it's important to actually have all the data in front of you. The, the NCAA updates the net and the team sheets every day. So you can size up all that information uh, this accurate information, the things that the committee looks at, uh, and you get those things once a day. You don't get them in real time as results occur on a nightly basis. 
So, you know, I, I think it's important to evaluate all that. And there's certain things you're looking at. You're comparing teams. You're, it's obviously not the same as a committee experience where you have 10 people uh, arguing back and forth, sizing things up, um, kind of going, having, a, having an extensive dialogue in comparison, you know, and in a lot of ways, so in, in many ways, 10, 10 brains is better than one. Uh, the one good thing about one brain rather than 10 is that you can make your, you can make your decisions a lot faster and kind of zip through, but you're probably not going to have quite the same amount of rigor, whether you like it or not. So going through that, you're, you're sizing teams up. And as the further along you get in the season, the more you, the more you remember what sort of things are dotting everybody's profile. Um, and it comes up in weird ways, not just in that evaluative process, but when you start trying to pair teams together in the tournament and you start thinking, gosh, didn't they play back in November? And so sometimes you have these random teams that you pair together. It's like, gosh, I can't, I can't put them together in the first round. And then you go back and look. It's like, oh, wait, Creighton and East Tennessee State played last year, not this year. So I can get away with that now. So that's one of the other things that tends to happen. Uh, So once you get into the last two or three weeks of the season, it becomes a little bit more of a frequent deal where you're sizing everything up uh, maybe a couple more times a week. Certainly the last week of the season, uh, my eyeballs are basically uh, (laughs) accustomed to these these, uh, PDFs from the NCAA. Uh, But I, I think it's important to have that data for the most part it's one thing if it's it's on selection sunday and you have only four games going on you can kind of you can kind of account for what might occur and how a team might be treated based on those handful of results and besides at that point you're talking about teams that have played 33 34 games right a single game doesn't really move a team a whole lot unless it's unless they're either in the field or outside the field if they win a league title game so, um, you know, there, there's a lot going on there, uh, and it kind of evolves as the season goes on. Good stuff. Patrick Stevens, my good friend. from You can follow him on, uh, follow his work on Twitter, Discourse, so it's D1 instead of an I. Uh, you can also follow his work with The Athletic and also The Washington Post. He is my guy, and I love having you on here every spring, even if uh, this is a different sort of year for Virginia and for me too. Patrick, thank you very much for your time. Um, we will probably be catching up with you down the road. Uh, good luck on all those PDFs um, that you will be no doubt pouring over very soon. Um, I want to thank everybody out there for continuing to support the show. Thanks for giving us um, some of your time. Um, for Patrick Stevens, I'm Brad Franklin, publisher of CatsCorner.com. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you soon.